Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology, Peter Riviere, and Director of the Pitt Rivers Museum, Dr Mike O'Hanlon, discussed decorative applications of feathers, beads and paint to the body, drawing on their fieldwork experiences among the indigenous populations of lowland Amazonia and South America and the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Well, we're standing here at the east end of the Pitt Rivers Museum's lower gallery, and in front of us is a gigantic display of feather ornaments from all over the world. Uh, Now, I've worked as an anthropologist in New Guinea, Peter in Amazonia. In both of those areas of the world, feather work um, is particularly important. And I thought I'd like to begin by asking Peter how feathers were used among the particular people that he worked with, the trio. Well, feathers are used sometimes every day. They're mainly used in ritual circumstances, but they tend to be very much more elaborately made and will only be brought out for those occasions. There are feathers which are worn by some people almost every day, little uh, feather crowns, or people stick a feather in their bracelets or armlets. And also, of course, there's an enormous advantage that the local birds, the macaws, the parrots, the toucans, are are marvellously colourful. But, in fact, one of the interesting things, I think, about Amazonia is that in the um, native Amazonians are not actually happy entirely with natural feather work and have means by which they can change their colours. This is a process known as tapirage, um, whereby, in fact, a a bird which has been plucked, normally you don't kill a bird, you, in fact, pluck it when the feathers are still alive and leave new feathers to come in, and after you've plucked it, you rub the secretions of certain frogs into the skin, and the feathers that grow out next have a more, uh, a, a more brilliant colour, often turning rather bright greens and yellows. Oh, that's really remarkable. I can't think of anything like that happening in um, Papua New Guinea. I mean, one of the sets of plumes that is very widely worn in New Guinea, and some of which are represented here, are birds of paradise. And one of the interesting things about birds of paradise is that they're sexually dimorphic. It's basically the males that have the really handsome plumes, whereas the females are rather dowdier, and the males display themselves very elaborately in an attempt to attract females to come to them. And this is reflected in human society, where it's often the the males, and to some extent unmarried girls, who actually decorate themselves elaborately in these wonderful bird-of-paradise plumes, and dance in front of potential suitors, in front of rivals. And indeed, there are sort of other kinds of comparisons that get made between the human and the bird world in New Guinea. And one of the things that birds of paradise do, for example, is that they shed their plumes intermittently. And this is not dissimilar to ritual practices in which people assemble large quantities of, of, of money or of pigs and they give them away in competitive exchanges so that there are sort of there's a period of latency during which people are doing the assembling and you know operating behind the scenes to pull all these kind of things together and then there's this the big display in which they actually decorate in plumes and perform the ritual and this is rather like the sort of natural cycle of birds of paradise people say 
Uh, that's interesting. I, I think, in fact, women in Amazonia virtually never wear feather ornaments as such. But what is interesting is, in fact, that objects sometimes get ornamented with feathers. For example, the sacred flutes. And to some extent, these flutes are people as well, in their terms. Well, you've, ri- you've written somewhere that sort of Amazonia is a, a highly transformational world, I think, are the words that you actually use. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, it, it, you cannot be absolutely certain that what you're looking at is what it actually is. Um, everything, in fact, ca- it can quite easily change from one thing into another. One of the, uh, I suppose, sort of transformational symbols of the people I worked among was the, the, the caterpillar. And they knew perfectly well about the life cycle of the, the caterpillar and the butterfly and such like and the chrysalis. And they regarded caterpillars and butterflies with considerable awe, in fact. And, of course, shamans are the ultimate form of human transformation. And there are lots of stories about shamans transforming themselves into jaguars. And the expression is always about the idea of putting on new clothes. So, in fact, clothes, in fact, once again, we're almost back with feathers again, because um, feathers and body paint and beads are all parts and things which you cake off and put on. And that is rather like the clothes, and shamans put on jaguar clothes. And one of the words for uh, the jaguar is the, the painted one. <laughs> When I first began doing fieldwork in Papua New Guinea, the price of coffee um, on the world market rocketed as a consequence of frosts all over Brazil. And the people that I worked with in particular spent a great deal of the um, income that flooded in from the, the coffee that they grew on buying new featherwork. And they bought much more expensive ones, 25 or 40 quid um, a plume from further away. So these are actually enormously valuable plumes and when you saw a clan who are decorated in feathers and displaying and dancing you know each man with between 10 and 20 plumes on you were seeing a lot of wealth um, on display and consequently people were quite careful about um, the plumes that's not quite simply the case in um, the areas of Amazonia that you know, is it, Peter? Not quite. I mean, one of the most interesting cases, if one goes back to northwest Amazon, where the feathers of a particular house, plumage and headdresses, which are so important for the uh, ritual, when not in use, are stored in a box immediately above the dance floor, suspended in the air. And for a village leader to have put together a large array of feathers is is a a very important sign of his ability to be a leader. They are wealth in a certain way. But they don't actually last longer than the death of a leader. Everything disintegrates, the house and the feathers and everything else. Okay, we've now turned and in front of us now are both desktop and upright cases on beads and beadwork. Peter, the um, area that you worked in in Amazonia, how were beads used? 
Well, it, it, beads are used in almost every way possible. I mean, it, it seems very odd that the most valuable thing to take into the forest with one were great bags of beads, and this sounds very much like 19th century explorers in Africa rather than anything else. But beads are incredibly important, and I think you find them used in every possible way. They wear lots of bead necklaces, they have beads around their upper arms, wristlets, frequently a string of beads just below the knee and again round the ankles. So there are masses of uh, of bead use um, all over their bodies. And one of the perhaps most interesting pieces of beadwork are the aprons which women wear. And these are literally small aprons suspended by a cord from the waist that hang down sort of halfway down the thigh and women of any age might wear these. You can find tiny little ones, which small girls wear, to really very large and astonishingly heavy ones, which um, adult women will wear. Where were the beads actually obtained from? Well, originally they were seeds, which in fact required a, a lot of work because <laughs> you've got to put the holes in. But in fact, as soon as um, it was possible to buy manufactured uh, beads, which come with holes in them, I think all Amerindians gave up using uh, seeds. A lot of anthropologists have written an awful lot um, about colour symbolism in mm. you know, different parts of the world. Was there any sort of colour symbolism associated with the um, beads that you knew best, or was there a point that they were beads? didn't matter what colour they were. It did matter. Uh, dark blue, dark red. <laughs> well, was, that a, was that a changing thing? As far as I know, but not, because in fact dark blue, or nearly black, and red are the two most natural colours available, and I, I think if we're going to talk about body painting later on, we'll yep. discover those are just the paints, coloured paints, they use. I know of examples all the way from the extreme north of South America to the very southern part of Brazil, where the beads you wear, the external, the necklaces, etc., and other bead ornaments, are seen as being the, the visible and material representation of internal sets of beads, which are clearly invisible and immaterial, which actually represent the capacities of that individual. In other words, the the beads are knowledge, the senses, what one feels, and these beads inside should be there and and looked after, and you look after them by looking after the beads on the outside. Um, I know of one very good ethnographic example of an old woman who was taken ill, and the shaman said, well, your internal beads are out of order, And the reason why they are not working properly is that, in fact, you haven't been looking after your outside beads properly. You've left a necklace hanging on a tree overnight and didn't bring it in. And what do you expect to be ill if you don't look after yourself properly? So there's a direct representation between, in fact, these external and visible and the internal and invisible. I think that's um, very directly paralleled in New Guinea, where there's there's almost a kind of divinatory sense to the outside of one's body as to what's actually going on in the inside. I mean, the particular people I worked among, there are lots of rumours about misdeeds in the past. No one really knew whether the misdeeds had actually happened. These are misdeeds that are thought to have you know, long-term 
deleterious effects on health, wealth, strength. And one of the ways actually of testing whether or not the words were right was actually just looking at people's skin, particularly people's skin when they were painted and decorated. And it was at, at such times that people thought, you know, the body was almost um, not there. You could see straight through into the heart of things. So reverting to what Peter was saying earlier, what you see can be very much what you get mm. at times in New Guinea. Well, return to body painting. One can go to what we've just been saying about the beads. Body painting is not just external decoration. It also, in fact, reflects internal states. And indeed, if one thinks of the Amerindian as a, a tube or series of tubes, one inside each other, and the inside of the a tube, in fact, is painted just as much as the outside. So it is once again a sort of inside-outside, but also, in fact, rather more obvious messages are conveyed by body painting. Throughout Amazonia, nearly all body paints are vegetable dyes. Sometimes you get some uh, mineral added in and everywhere we're talking about black which comes from Geneva Americana and various shades of red of which I think Uruku, Pixa Orellana is probably the most widespread although there, there are others and frequently in fact the red paint is put on as a, as a wash while the black paint is put on as a design. This is not universally so, but it, it, it is quite commonly so. Some parts of Amazonia, people, in fact, can do what they like, so to speak. They can choose their own decorations and their own colours, although they tend, in fact, to follow certain general patterns. Other parts of Amazonia, where you've got the internal social organisation of a particular tribe, is into, let's call them clans for the sake of it, and each clan will own a different design and a body painting. So, in fact, you can tell when they're painted up exactly which group somebody belongs to. In other words, it's like two football teams playing and they have different coloured shirts. So you have, in fact, that um, thing. But in New Guinea, do you get the same? So sometimes I'm such and such and therefore I paint myself like this. Well, in my experience, there's a sort of experimental quality to painting. I mean, much of it is about attracting the other sex. I remember when I was first doing fieldwork uh, among the Wagi people, asking a man whether he ever got his wife to help decorate him. He said, are you mad? I'm, I'm trying to attract other women. <laughs> she would bespell me. She would stop that. There are other kinds of distinctions. I mean, on the whole, throughout much of New Guinea, when people are fighting, when they're decorated as warriors, they use charcoal. They use black paint, mm. and it, that often goes along with particular um, mm -hmm. bird plumes. And, of course, everything we've been talking about, the plumes and the paint and the beads often mm. hang together in particular assemblages. Talking about making themselves attractive for other women, I remember, in fact, various conversations where I had to explain what I did back in my own village. Um, and this all had to take place in, in, in their language. And being terribly amused by my description of how we body painted back in Western society and the idea that you might put red on your lips, for example, and blacken your eyelashes. They, they in fact, of course, have plucked all their eyebrows and eyelashes. So the idea that, in fact, you actually accentuated them with sort of black paint, they found absolutely hilarious. And the idea that you dab powder and, and, and rouge, they did find it very, very entertaining indeed. Yes, yes. <laughs>